Well, if you can remember, we started looking at the life and ministry, the death and resurrection of Christ, his characteristics, uh, in fact, all about him, as recorded and outlined for us in the Psalms. Uh, we started last week looking at Psalm number 2, and uh, we started to realize, or we started to be reminded that this poetic sentimental hymn book of the Old Testament is as hard it in as any other book in the whole of the Bible. As I said, it was Psalm 2 that we made our foundation stone last week and we sprung from there into the into the Gospels and back and looked around you there and everywhere and saw some of the amazing things that had been prophesied about Christ a thousand years before they actually happened. Now I did promise last week that uh, we wouldn't be so detailed from now on and we would do more than just one psalm like we did last week but i got to be honest that's easier said than done. Uh, but I have tried. I have tried. I'm look, we're going to look at two psalms tonight. Uh, or in fact, the first psalm we're only going to have a little glance at. Uh, and that's Psalm number 40. Psalm number 40. You know, and then we'll follow from there, uh, logically, uh, into Psalm number 22. You know, and uh, it's a, a reference that we've looked at before in this, in this series. And uh, I suppose that if we weren't, if we were a little more observant, we would find a problem with the, this verse in Psalm 40. Because there's something missing in the verse. There's, there are words that are actually missing from the text. We've done this about three or four Thursday nights ago. That there are actually a little phrase that is missing from the text. And if God hadn't been so diligent in writing it down somewhere else, then we would never have been able to understand uh, what it's all about. You know, we'll, uh, it, I'll explain myself as we go on. Psalm 40 and verses 6 to 8 says this, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, my ears you have opened. Burnt offering and sin and sin offering you did not require. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book it is written of me. And I delight to do your will, O my God. And your law is within my heart. You know, of course, it's, a, it's an obvious reference to Christ. As he outlines for us his earthly mission. You know, and the earthly mission of Christ is a big one. It's an important one. It's an essential one. It's a necessary one. Uh, it's one that only he could have uh, undertaken to do. And it's one that he executed amazingly when he died upon the cross. You know, and uh, of course he came to satisfy, basically he came to satisfy the righteous demands of the Holy God on our behalf. He didn't have to satisfy the righteous demands of the Holy God for himself because he is holy, he is pure, he is un undefiled, he is separate from sinners. That's what uh, Hebrews would tell us. 
That's a description of this high priest that we have. But he had to satisfy the righteous demands of a holy God on our behalf. Because we couldn't do that. Because we are the exact opposite to who Jesus is. We are defiled. We are impure. We are sinners. And we are, we are separate, not from sinners, but we are separate from God. So something had to be done for us in order to change our status, change our position, and make us to be where Jesus is. That's the important thing. And that's the mission that Jesus came to perform. Now when we look at this passage that we got on the, on the board here, sacrifices and offerings, the burnt offerings and the sin offerings, they didn't really cut it with God. Yes, it was he who set them out, but they didn't really have an, uh, an effect upon him in any way at all. See, sin was still sin. And the blood of bulls and goats could take away no sin. So that's the position that we're in. No, and yes, they may have been pictures that God used to teach his people the lessons of atonement. What does atonement mean? Well, here are some word pictures. Here are some um, dramas, if you like. You know, we are we are very fond of dramas in uh, in Emmanuel Christian Fellowship, and I I believe that this place was rocking and rolling <laughs> on Sunday night uh, when a certain person of two people stood up and did a drama here, and uh, could you hear the laughter from Pentra? And uh, now we love dramas here, and they teach us things. They show us things. Because we can sort of understand more that of what we can see than what we can hear. You know, when here is God in, in His grace, He's given us all these pictures, these dramas, in order to teach us the real meaning of atonement. But they didn't actually atone. They had no power to atone. You know, and uh, to achieve what they represented. They were but shadows. You know, and a shadow uh, doesn't do anything. It just lays there. You wanna, yeah, and if you can imagine, the shadow of the cross run all across the Old Testament. In pictures and dramas and words and everything, it all points to something. There was a shadow laying across the whole of the Old Testament. But you see, a shadow doesn't do anything. It doesn't hurt any. The shadow of a gun doesn't kill anybody. The shadow of an ice cream doesn't satisfy anyone's thirst. They are just shadows. And yes, they are good for us to give understanding, but the shadow has to end in a substance. You know, and um, when you think about the cross, the shadow was there because there was a substance. You know, at the beginning of the first century, a real cross stood stark on the horizon, just outside the city of Jerusalem. And on that real cross, that solid cross, that had cast the shadow over the Old Testament, hung a man. 
who died on our behalf. And the shadows of the Old Testament comes into the substance of the new. And it is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ himself that all these pictures in the Old Testament represented. And we know here tonight in Emmanuel Christian Fellowship that it's his blood and his blood alone atones for sin and satisfies the righteous standards or the righteous demands of a holy God. But the principle still stands that it has to be a sacrifice. Even though the old sacrifices accomplished nothing at all in the economy of God, God has provided himself a lamb. A sacrifice that would be sufficient to take away the sins of the whole world. You know, the writer to the Hebrew says, Without shedding of blood, there is no remission. There is no forgiveness. There is no satisfaction of the righteousness of Christ. And therefore Christ, Jesus himself, to fulfill his mission has to become a sacrifice. His blood must be shed. Now, here is the problem. Here is the problem. To shed blood, you have to be human. You have to be human. And to be human, you have to have a body. That's about the bottom line. You have to be human to shed human blood. And you have to have a body to be human. Now in our verse that we had looked at earlier from Psalm 40. There is no mention of a body at all. There is no mention of a body at all in Psalm 40. But there has to be a body. There has to be a body. It is imperative that there is a body. You know, we saw that the Hebrews reference, the, he- the writer to the Hebrews, has quoted this reference from Psalm 40, and he's put it in his New Testament book. But he has added a body. Listen to it, what it says. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. You see, it's a little different from Psalm 40. And yet, he is quoting Psalm 40. So where does this writer get this? And of course, we know this because we dealt with it a couple of weeks ago. The Greek Old Testament that was translated about 220-240 years before Christ actually has this you know that the text has obviously been corrupted the text has been damaged in some way or another and therefore that word and a body you have prepared for me hasn't come through in the Old Testament but the, but the Greek Old Testament carries the perfect reference and the writer to the Hebrews who is first of all Hebrew but secondly is na- is language, his second language was Greek. You know, and an awful lot of these New Testament writers, they quoted not from the Hebrew Bible, as you would have expected, but from the Greek Bible. You know, we can see that the Hebrews portion here has been quoted directly from the Greek Bible, the Greek Old Testament, 
And therefore the word body is there. So we can thank God for the Greek Old Testament. Because God in his providence has placed it there before that particular text was lost to us. A body. Christ is human. And humans bleed. Christ is human and humans bleed. Now that's a very important part of our study tonight. That Jesus Christ came in the flesh. He was born of a woman in the same way as you and I was born of a woman. It was his conception. That is the important part. His birth was quite normal. Because he was born a human being. In order that he bleed. You know we sing the song to me that to create everything he had to speak the word. But to redeem everything, he had to bleed his own precious blood. Now then, we're going to, having settled that in our minds tonight, which of course is but a reminder for us, we must move on to our second psalm. And it's Psalm 22. Psalm 22. You know, and Psalm 22, of course, contains in the most descriptive language the moment when Jesus Christ actually gave his life as a ransom for many. It was the moment that he hung upon a cruel cross. It was the moment that he shed his precious blood. And it was the moment that he became our substitute. And when we read, and whatever we read on the, about Jesus on the cross, whether we read it directly from the report of the Gospels, or we read it directly from the prophecy of the Psalms, you and I should have been there. Christ has actually taken our place. And it all happened there upon the cross. Now I want to look at this psalm. Psalm 22, under three headings, uh, as we see the, in, the incredible, I think, accuracy of this amazing prophecy being acted out a thousand years later, just a few yards away, perhaps, from where it was written. And the first word that I want us to look at, or the first heading that I have, is the word, word. The words that we have in this psalm. You know, there are three exclamations in this psalm that appear almost word for word while Christ hung upon the cross. And we take them in order as they are acted out at Calvary, rather than the order of what they of what they are um, recorded in the psalm. So verses six to eight says these words, and this is Jesus talking. You know we sang a lovely song tonight. I think the songs have been just there tonight for me anyway. We sang a lovely song and we've seen God becoming the servant king. And I suppose that when we think about the step that He made. As has been said in the prayers tonight, it blows our minds. 
we can't comprehend. But look how he starts this section of the scriptures. This is Jesus talking. But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip and they shake the head saying now who are they talking about they are talking about their creator they are talking about the one who even when he was on the cross had their next breath in his hands what a way to treat such a benefactor as God himself and yet here we can see how sinful and degraded and corrupt man has become you know to even put him on the cross beggars belief and yet for him to feel like this is absolutely incredible but I am a worm says Jesus and no man a reproach of men and despised by the people all those who see me ridicule me and they shoot out the lip and they shake the head saying he trusted in the Lord let him rescue him let him deliver him since he delights in him you know and as soon as we hear those last phrase immediately we hear those words we are transported from the palace or the tent of David you know we zoom a thousand years into the future and we find ourselves at the scene of Golgotha because those words are so familiar to us they are so so familiar to us you know the mockery of the crowd is probably etched on our minds as Christians for those of us who love the Lord Jesus Christ the mockery of Calvary is familiar to us but notice in that awful din of mockery and scorn and detestation we hear a definite phrase being used there's a definite phrase that we can pick up and here it is he trusted in the Lord let him rescue him let him deliver him since he delights in him now of course again these words are more than familiar to us we read them every Easter time they are part of our Good Friday conversations but you see the difference is that we don't repeat them from Psalm 22 we wouldn't dream of repeating those words he trusted in the Lord let him rescue him let him deliver him since he delights in him we wouldn't think about quoting Psalm 22 on Good Friday or any other day of the year because we are more familiar with them as they come in Matthew chapter 27 you and Matthew 27 says likewise the chief priests also mocking 
with the scribes and the elders said he saved others himself he cannot save if he is the king of Israel let him come down from the cross and we'll believe him he trusted God let him deliver him now if he will have him because he said I am the son of God now that's where we remember the, the quote from next Good Friday whoever's preaching here they will quote from Matthew 27 because that's what becomes real to us but a thousand years before that event the psalmist David penned those words you know, and it's almost as if he had been transported a thousand years into the future and he sat on a, on a secluded spot on Golgotha and he observed all the things and he recorded all the voices and he took them back to his place in Zion and wrote them all down as prophecy you know, it's absolutely incredible it's incredible you know, don't ever think that ah but he knew the scriptures and he said that just to fulfill them let me tell you this when you've got a nail in each hand and you've got a nail in each foot and you've got a dozen thorns sticking in your head and the flesh of your back is hanging off and people are slapping you and cursing you the last thing that you want to do is fulfill the scriptures word for word and besides that he didn't do it they did they did and they didn't want to fulfill the scriptures because it would prove his deity so how subtle when you read those words that were spoken on Golgotha how subtle the high priest is as he sets out for us a glaring principle you see for the last three years Christ has claimed that he is the son of God and for the last three years the high priests and the scribes and the Pharisees have totally denied it but now was his chance to prove his divine sonship all he had to do was come off the cross and we know that that is a simple thing for Christ in fact he tells us that he could have called 12 legions of angels to come and do it for him you and they would have delicately taken the nails out and they would have lovingly taken him off and he would have stood there and fulfilled their wishes but he wouldn't have redeemed the soul he wouldn't have redeemed the soul you see it now was the time to prove his divine sonship the challenge well if you're the son of God then prove it to prove it your father isn't going to let you suffer there if you are really his delight mm. you know he will bring you down prove it mm. we'll believe you we'll follow you mm. you know this is this is just one of a long line of temptations that Christ had to suffer this probably being one of the most extreme temptations mm. to stay on the cross would send the message that he is not the son of God but to descend from the cross would completely destroy the very reason why he came to the cross in the first place so you can see the battle that went on 
in our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. You know, when we talk about temptation, we got no idea. Because by the time we'd come to this extreme of temptation, we'd have given in a long time ago. You know, Jesus was tempted until he bled. And none of us have been tempted until we've bled. To stay on the cross was to send a message that we are, he's not the Son of God. But to descend from the cross would completely destroy the very reason that he came to the cross. This phrase used by the high priest, I believe, was Satan's last diabolical attempt to thwart the plan of God's salvation and prevent Christ from hanging on a tree as a curse in order to remove our curse and from shedding his precious blood in order to atone for our sin. Satan's there. If only I can get him off the cross, I will win the battle. But he stayed on the cross. He stayed on the cross. Not because he wasn't the Son of God, but because he was the Son of God. That's the beauty of this situation. Of course, the most familiar words of Psalm 22, that are uttered from the cross, are the first words of the psalm. Obviously, they didn't come in chronological order, they came in logical order, but we are looking at it chronologically, and we come to verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, in 19, back in, if I was to go back to 1996, when we're doing chapter 2 of, of Ephesians, I believe that the Lord showed me something, and I'm not that type of preacher, you know, the Lord showed me this. But um, I, the Lord has shown me something about this aspect of Calvary that an awful lot of Christians are afraid to say. You know, and whenever I mention this, I always go a little bit cold in case I'm barking up the wrong tree. But if you don't say what I'm going to say now, then to me, you weaken the strength of the statement that is made. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now to me, this has to signify the moment when Christ died in his relationship with his Father. Right now, this is what people are afraid to see. The penalty of sin is death. Now let's go back into the garden and listen to what God says. He says, in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Now we know that when Adam sunk his teeth into the fruit on that day, it was hundreds of years before he actually died. But he died to God that moment. It was a penalty for sin. And if Christ is going to pay the penalty for our sin, then he too must not only die physically, which he does, but die in his relationship with God. You see, the word forsaken, people water it down. So many people water it down. But when you look at that word, it is the worst word in the Bible. Mm. 
to be God forsaken now none of us know what that means because none of us have ever been God forsaken only one person up until now has ever experienced the God forsaken situation and that is Jesus because he has died in his relationship to God now I want you to notice a few things about this statement and the first thing I want you to notice is that between the hours of 12 o'clock noon to 3 o'clock darkness came upon the earth now I was listening to um, a very distinguished uh, Bible teacher the other day on the television and um, he's made some calculations he's a, he's a I, I think he's in Oxford he, he lives in Oxford and it wouldn't surprise me that he went to Oxford University because he is a brilliant person right, that's sort of putting him in some kind of what I call and um, he has calculated that on the 3rd of April AD 33 there was a full moon and an solar eclipse and he says that for me he says tells me that on Friday the th- 3rd of April AD 33 Jesus died now when I heard that I had a bit of a problem because I believe that Jesus died on Wednesday that might, that's my first uh, problem right and if you ever want to know why I believe that Jesus died on Wednesday ask me and we'll do a study on it on a, Sunday, on a Thursday night right? we've already done it in, uh, in starting from scratch and I, th- I was thinking oh I've made a big mistake but then I was thinking about an eclipse and no eclipse will ever last three hours in fact it is impossible for an eclipse to last three hours and no eclipse is ever universal you know when you know a couple of years ago and going back now into, back into the 80s or the 90s we had a total eclipse in Britain you know what I can remember going to Ponty <laughs> on the day that it happened <laughs> and we was up by the T Mauer Hotel which is when you go up under the bridge to go in the secret way to Ponty we were there and there was a total eclipse and do you know it just went dim the birds started uh, quietening down it all went quiet we stopped the car we got out of the car and we looked we couldn't see the eclipse because it was cloudy right but when the people many people at that day travelled to Cornwall because they'd have a better view with the eclipse it was fuller in Cornwall than it was here mm. now here in Cornwall 80 miles 80 miles and there was a better eclipse down there than up here the Bible says it was all over the world you know in our Bibles it says land but the actual Greek word is day which is world and you know there has been reports in Rome in history books of a time when it went dark for three hours so it, not only in Jerusalem was it dark it was dark in Rome now of course if we went down under it would have been dark anyway 
So we're only talking about one sphere. And that one sphere was set in darkness. So no eclipse has lasted more than three hours. No eclipse has been universal. So what was this? It wasn't an eclipse. No, we are too quick to try and find a natural solution. This is a supernatural solution. And I would take you back to Genesis chapter 1. And Genesis chapter 1, the first day of Genesis chapter 1, God says these words. Let there be light. And that light, somehow, wherever it came from, governed the day and the night. Because the next verse says, and the morning and the evening were the first day. We're going to roll on four days. And God said, I'm going to make a big light to rule the day, which is the sun, and a big, a small light to rule the night. So the light came before the sun. So we are not dependent upon the sun for our light. We are dependent upon God for our light. That's obvious to me. That when this happened, it wasn't the sun going out. It was God moving away. And when God moves away, darkness will flood in. And therefore when we look at this situation, and Christ speaks out these words, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I'm in the dark. I've lost your light. I've lost your life. Now that's what is obvious to me. This was the withdrawal of God who is light. And in him is no darkness at all. But take him away. And not even the sun will shine its light upon us. We know, don't we, that in eternity there will be no need of the sun or the moon. Because God is our light. And Christ is our lamp. So here we are. We have an unheard of, unrepeated circumstance darkness for three hours in the middle of the day as the presence of God left the presence of his son you know and this was what was in the cup when he looked into it there was more than just physical agony in the cup there was a righteous penalty of sin And the penalty of sin is death. Now very quickly, we're going to go very quickly. Another significant phrase uttered at Calvary and recorded in Psalm 22 uh, is the last phrase of the psalm. Uh, A posterity shall serve him. It will be recounted of the Lord to the next generation. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born. That this has, that, that he has done this and it's that little phrase he has done this the Hebrew word would would suggest he has executed this he has executed this or we could say he has finished this you wonder it's obvious that the link is there you see Christ finished the work on Calvary And this psalm ends with this word, he has done it. He has uh, executed it. He has finished it. Now whether we could say 
that these signify Christ's explosive victory cry, it is finished? I don't know. You know, the link is quite tenuous, I think, to be really certain, but the link is actually there. You know, when when we come to the end of the psalm, Jesus says, I've done it. I've done it. I've completed it. I've finished it. When we come to the end of Calvary, he says, I've done it. I've completed it. I've I've executed it. It's finished. That's just something for you to think about. You know, they're not the exact words. Uh, uh, You know, and you can't get it to say the exact things. But I think the the principle uh, is there for us. Now, my second uh, heading is actions. Actions. You know, some of these words are really disturbing, really. Listen to what Jesus said. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax that is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death, for dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. And I suppose that we could spend the next few weeks on this section of Psalm 22 and talk about the horrors of crucifixion, the feelings of Christ and the torment that he went through. But I'd just like us to see the two things that actually stand out describing what people did while the scene was being played out at Calvary. How callous people are. This is what they did. Firstly, they pierced his hands and his feet. You know, and my question when I read that is why? Why? Where does the psalmist get this phrase from? Because this phrase has not one vestige of uh, significance to him at all. You know, I can almost imagine him sitting back as as he's written, written his psalm and thinking, what have I written there then? I can't remember writing that. What on earth have I written that for? What's that got to do with anything? That's not significant. What's that describing? You know, because the the thing is that none of that was ever known to him. None of that was any was ever contemporary to him. Nothing of that should ever be in his vocabulary. That has come completely out of the blue. And I don't really know why I've written it there. Is this man being punished? Well, yes. Well, he should be stoned. Is this man being executed? Well, he should be beheaded. Where has all this peace in the hands and feet come from? I got no idea. I'm sorry, but this is out of place. And refers to nothing 
that I know or anyone else knows. Don't forget, he was writing a thousand years before Christ. Where has all this piercing of the hands and feet come from? You see, the earliest historical record of crucifixion dates to 519 BC when King Darius I of Persia crucified 3,000 of his political enemies in Babylon. That's the first mention in the whole of antiquity of crucifixion. The Persians. The Persians were 500 years that way from David. Crucifixion hadn't even been dreamed up. It hadn't been thought of. Let alone designed or invented. No one died having their feet and their hands pierced. And yet David, a thousand years, as he's penning this 22nd Psalm, says, They've pierced my hands and my feet. You know, and um, let's go to the upper room on Resurrection Sunday. It's the evening and Jesus turns up and he says and when he had said this he showed them his hands and his side and the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And then it says and so he, Thomas, said to them unless I see in his hands the prints of the nails and put my finger into the prints of the nails and put my hand into his side I will not believe and after eight days his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them and Jesus came the doors being shut and stood in the midst and said peace to you and he said to Thomas reach your finger and look at my hands and reach your hand and put it into my side do not be believing, believing, but be believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Yeah. David, how on earth did you know? How did you know? We know. Because this is exactly what happened. You know, we could go, of course, to Zechariah 12. You know, when on that uh, great day of revelation, when Christ will come and stand on the Mount of Olives on that last moment you know when Israel for the first time will see the Messiah we read am I in the am I in the right yeah and they will look on me whom they have pierced yes they will mourn for him as of an only son and grieve for him as one who grieves a firstborn you know of course what has become synonymous with crucifixion is the dividing of his robes and the gambling or the dividing of his garments and the dividing of his robe and again these are recorded for us in Psalm 22 you know we talk about this we preach about this but most of us preach it from Matthew or from John or from Luke or from Mark but here is David a thousand years before and he's saying, this is what you are to expect. And my last head in, we dealt with that, uh, the robes in, a, you know, in more detail before that. My last head in is enemies. 
enemies. You know, the picture here of the Psalm 22 is of a hind, um, a little deer being chased down by four wild animals. That's what it's all about. That's the picture that we have. And if you remember last week, when we were in Psalm 2, we looked at the enemies of the king. And we used a verse from Acts to describe who they really were. And they are Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, and the people of Israel. These were what the, uh, the disciples, when they were praying to God, this is what they said. Herod was there. Pontius Pilate was there. The Gentiles were there. And the people of Israel were gathered against the Lord's anointed. That's what Psalm 2 said. But now Psalm 22 has quite a similar list. Only this time David uses symbolic language. Uh, but to be honest, they're quite easily deciphered. You know, we haven't got to guess who these people are. You know, and um, again, I've gone into uh, detail before tonight. So tonight you just have to take my word that what I say is true. Now you've got these four animals. You've got the bulls of Basha. You've got the dogs, plural, and a dog, singular. You've got the lion, and you've also got the wild ox. Now what do they represent? Well, the, the bulls of Bashan, they would represent for us the hierarchy of the Jews. You know, there is a reference in Amos to this. And, um, you see, if you wanted to go into it in detail, uh, we could at a later date. But they are the Jews, the hierarchy of the Jews. These are the people who are responsible for betraying Christ to the Romans. For him to, them to deal with him in the atrocious way they did. Who are the dogs? The dogs are the Gentile powers. The Romans. The Romans were there in all their ugliness and brutality. But there was a dog there whose name was Pilate. He represented the dog or the dogs as the big dog. I'm the big dog. Then of course there's the lion which would refer obviously to Satan who is like a lion going about who he may devour. And he had to be there because his head was about to be smashed in. Mm. That's what happened at Calvary. Uh, the seed of the woman bruised the seed of the serpent. So he had to be there. Satan had to be there to have his comeuppance. And of course the wild ox represents the mob. The mob made up of uh, the Jewish nation at this point. They hated Christ with a vengeance. And when the mob got going, they twisted the arm of the dog and the dog set the dogs mm. on the heart or the hind or whatever we like to call it. You know, and, um, and when you compare the lists, they're almost identical, except that Herod has been replaced by Satan, which is quite fitting, because he was rather satanic. Mm. But I want you to notice, before we finish, that it wasn't the bulls, it wasn't the dogs, it wasn't the lion and it wasn't the ox that delivered the hind to the dust it was none of them 
Like no matter what men may say and what men, men may think, it wasn't the Jews that did it. It wasn't the Romans and the chief onshore pilot. It wasn't Satan. It wasn't the mob that brought the, de- the hind to the dust. Because God delivered his darling from all of these things. But there was one prayer in this psalm that not even God could answer. And that is, But you, O Lord, do not be far from me, O my strength. Hasten and help me. Deliver me from the sword. Mm. Jesus prayed that exact prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane when he said, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. You see the same, the similarity between those two prayers. Save me from the sword. Be not far from me. And yet we know that God forsook his son. And it was the sword of God's righteousness that was sheathed into the heart of Christ. You see, the enemies were but bit players in this scene. This covenant was between the Father and the Son on our behalf. I love this. Jehovah bade his sword arise. O Christ, it woke against thee. Thy blood, its flaming blade, must slake. Thy heart, its sheath, must be. All for my sake, my peace to make. Now sleeps that sword for me. But listen to it again. And listen to the pronouns, the personal pronouns, because they are incredible. Jehovah bade his sword arise. See, it's not Satan who did the the damage at Calvary. It's not the Jews. It's not the Romans. It's not the mob. It was was God whose sword took the life of Christ. O Christ, it woke against thee. His sword against Christ. Mm. Thy blood, its flaming blade must slake. Thy heart, its sheath must be. That's Calvary. Mm. This is today. All for my sake. My peace to make now sleeps that sword for me see I fear no sword of God's righteousness anymore it doesn't come to slake its sheath its blade into my heart because it slaked its blade into the heart of Christ on my behalf 